0: Hello, and welcome to The Order of Unmanageable Risks, a podcast about capitalism and anxiety. My name is Max Haven, and I'm Canada Research Chair in Culture, Media, and Social Justice at Lakehead University.
1: Hello, my name is Arias Komporosos Athanasios, and I teach sociology at University College London. On this show, we call up someone whose research or writing has inspired us to think differently about capitalism and society. We seek to go beyond medical approaches to mental health and to explore the way an economic system both produces and relies on anxiety. This podcast is produced by the Common Anxieties Research Project with the support of University College London, Institute for Advanced Study, and the Reimagining Value Action Lab. For more information, you can visit www.anxious.community. And this week,
0: we're extremely fortunate to be joined by Esther Leslie, who is a Professor of Political Aesthetics at Birkbeck, University of London. Esther's books include Hollywood Flatlands, Animation, Critical Theory and the Avant-Garde, from Verso in 2002. Synthetic Worlds, Nature, Art, and the Chemical Industry, from 2005. Derelicts, Thought Worms from the Wreckage, in 2014. Liquid Crystals, A Science and Art of the Fluid Form, from 2016. And Deeper in the Pyramid, with Melanie Jackson, from 2018. She's currently working on a project called Turbid Media, about the new presence of fog, froth, and foam in our world, and also history and philosophy of the device which is one of the topics we'll be talking about today welcome Esther thank you uh i have been uh reading Esther's work for a number of years which i found when i was doing research uh, i believe many years ago when i was still a graduate student on Walter Benjamin uh that Esther is uh, a figure that Esther has written about uh quite extensively um and the general tradition of uh thought that emanates from that Marxist philosopher of visual culture and consumer society. So it's a really wonderful opportunity to get to speak with you today. Um, Today we're going to focus on a recent article by Esther in Journal of Visual Culture, uh, Volume 18, Issue 1 from uh, last year, 2019, and the title of that article is This Other Atmosphere Against Human Resources emoji and devices. And uh, I guess before we get started, Esther, I just wonder if you might tell us a little bit about, about how you came to write this essay and, and focus on these topics.
2: It emerged out of a conference that Markard Smith had organized at, um, at UCL, indeed, which was somehow to do with questions of, of the emotion. Uh, no not to do with the emotions, to do with human resources. Um, As an open kind of phrase, what are human resources? But of course, I immediately interpreted that as I was expected to in relation to questions of labour management, I suppose. But then that very quickly took me down the route of thinking about the ways in which emotional life is managed in labour situations. So I did a shorter conference paper about those questions. And because it was under the auspices of the Journal of Visual Culture, I was quite interested in the visual analogues to that. So thinking about the ways in which visual technologies have been used to monitor emotion and to monitor labor. And um, the, the written piece developed out of that fortuitously. At the same time, the artist Zoe Beloff was working on a show called Emotions Go to Work, which um, eventually showed in Colchester. And she was working at the same time as me on questions of labor and emotion and uh, emojis and emoticons, which are issues that come up in the, in the essay. So I would sort of developed it very much in that direction.
0: I I thought maybe we could just begin very briefly by talking about uh, the emergence, I think it was maybe last week or perhaps the week before, of the the strange care emoji that Facebook has announced, this sort of strange hug-like creature um, that they've developed, I guess, particularly to help people who are feeling isolated or fearful or who knows, in the, in the current pandemic. H- have you seen this? And uh, yeah, it's very strange.
2: No, I haven't seen the actual emoji. It sort of flitted across the screen, the, the various screens on which I spend most of my life now. So I sort of became aware of it and I think filed it alongside um, yeah, hand clapping emojis <laughs> for the NHS, you know, one of these kind of functional, non-functional little bits of, pixel fluff that um, kind of try to make us feel better but a, a fairly inconsequential in a way but it's probably thereby the most you know iconic it'll probably surface as the most iconic thing of this whole period, I should think.
0: Mm-hmm. Hey, I was wondering, and maybe we'll return to this uh, near the end of the conversation when we come when we circle back to the emojis. But I wondered if it's a if it's an emoji, it's just sort of a, like a temporary emoji, or if this will be a new sort of structure of digital affect from henceforth. Mm. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Will it extend our, our kind of palette? I mean, it's sort of interesting because maybe it does name a new kind of emotion that that comes into being in these extraordinary uh, new pandemic circumstances a sort of you know a lot of lip service given to the notion of of care um perhaps less self-care which is interesting because it's always self-isolation which i find quite odd whereas what we might be doing is isolating with that sort of extra kick of the the self uh, has to be added to sort of in- increase the kind of parameters around ourselves but with care was it just a, a care emotion, just this sort of abstract care that could go in, in any direction um, at just this moment when uh, so little care might be being um, uh, encouraged or given out by our leaders?
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it reminds me of a, a passage in your uh, text where you, you reflect on the infamous uh, visit of uh, Melania Trump to the uh, refugee detention center where she was wearing that very strange coat that said, I don't really care to you. And I wondered if they'd make like a sort of emoji of her and it could be like the I don't care (laughs) emoji.
2: Yeah, there always has to be another kickback. I'm sure Trump would be um, very happy to plaster that all over his Twitter account, I don't
0: care. Sort of the apotheosis of Trump as an emoji okay okay um so what uh, as with most of our formats for these conversations uh i have a number of quotations from your article which i'd like to read and then just ask you in some way to respond to because i think these uh i found your writing to be extremely um illuminating and evocative and i, I wanted to share it and i've sort of picked out four passages and hopefully we'll be able to get to them in the next uh short while when we have you here Um, And I sort of picked them to delineate a bit of a story, one of the many stories that flows through this piece. Um, And so you write uh, somewhat early on in the essay that, quote, Marx wrote of labor power long ago. Is the labor power of today's human resources ever more heavily invested in questions of morale? Are the capacities to labor of contemporary workers more aligned to emotion, mood management and affect? The resource that is the human is often now employed as a generator of emotion, atmosphere, comfort, or intimidation. Human resources are an indefinite quantity of muscle, brain, nerves, and movement, which may be the movement of stretching out a smile or a nod of affirmation, a shop worker's polite phrases, a bouncer's tough demeanor outside the nightclub, All these muscular movements may be monitored reactions required to prove their effectiveness as such, employed in the realm of what has been termed emotional labor power. Emotional attitude, the effort of keeping up a smile in the face of angry customers or ungrateful clients, the energy needed to display positive emotion and to repress negative aspects, is an energy mustered by the worker, but it belongs to the managers who have purchased that emotional labor power. This emotional control or management is organized so as not to jeopardize the product, the service, the labor outputs that have been bought by the employer or the consumer, part of which includes emotional performance or demeanor. The labor power of smiling has its costs though, multiple ones. Emotion is a resource, an energy, a labor power that is directed towards production. Emotion is also a product, the output of a part of the salable thing or experience. Emotion is a capacity that is developed in order to produce something, an atmosphere, a mood, an experience or service, perhaps a thing, such as when a product is apparently crafted with love or made with care. Such emotional labor power, the capacity to emote, believably enough at least, is what makes the prospect of AI replacement of workers complicated. At the same time, this capacity, this labor power, And this labor of emotions find other outlets as output in as much as emotions are increasingly rendered as data, which is then to be further used and exchanged. Emotions become a kind of raw material, something to be mined. This endless resource of emotions has been made excavable and capturable by contemporary technologies, which make it possible for emotions to be donated without respite. I I wonder about this uh, passage, and I've made a few omissions or ellipses here, but about a kind of transition in capitalism from one that seemed to, that at least appeared uh, in maybe like the 19th century form of industrial capitalism, not to particularly care what workers thought or felt or did, to one that seems increasingly invested in emotions both as a product that then they can and workers emotions specifically as, as a product they can sell to customers but then also as uh some way of managing labor power in this moment how, how would you characterize that kind of transition that we've been through
2: yeah i think you know i think there's a variety of things there because in in some ways as i want to i always want to say marx was there already you know in his ideas of the living personality or the way he writes about the 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 human who's sort of cauterized and unable to um fully experience through the senses because of the conditions of labor and and for me that's an emotional um stunting in a way and marx is sort of aware of it so i i sort of almost want want to say that that it's, it's there and, and we can read it through Marx's ideas. But while sort of at, at the same time acknowledging or tracking a, a way in which it comes more and more to the fore in terms of certain techniques. But, you know, this, the, the fascination with the emotions, with their physiological basis and all of the sort of, uh, work around Darwin, uh, um, you know, looking at the emotions in humans and animals, and and so on, shows that there obviously there's already a, an interest in there in emotion and in questions of personality, but perhaps it can't be locked so effectively to um, the workplace and sort of made operative as as a way to. Um, I suppose, mo- monitor workers, but also then as a sort of technique to stimulate and, and increase productivity, which I suppose is something I track across the article, that it, it becomes increasingly a sort of mode of human resource management to, to think about the emotional um, investments uh, to stimulate emotional investment across a workforce to uh, block out certain emotions within a workforce and so on. I suppose one of the things I was doing in turning the attention to the emotional was not necessarily foregrounding its increased presence in our working environments although that is also the argument it's also to undermine a kind of marxism that wouldn't be interested in that mm. in those questions um and we probably know you know far too many sort of uh types of marxism that exclude that idea and so ideas of emotional labor didn't I don't think, particularly emerge at the, at the core of uh, Marxist theory. So I wanted to, to bring that together with Marx's idea of labour power as a, as a central facet of his analysis. But then I was just thinking as you read the paragraph, by the end we've sort of got back to the, the usual Marxist concern with production and, and a kind of concrete... Um, area of of something almost tangible that across the course of the passage emotions become as they become themselves uh become a raw material for mining and for excavation and for uh, another circuit of valorization so you know in a way this is kind of also about uh putting what seems to be outside the the usual sort of circuits of value, according to Marxist theory, right back into the center of them.
0: hmm And and then uh, in the next passage I wanted to read you, you in some way bring us to the to the true kind of terror of the present, uh, which is the way in which these new digital technologies have opened up a whole new spectrum of methods for control and excitement of emotions. Um, and, and I just want to read this passage because I think it offers us so many clear examples of how this works, but to preface it by saying that what I appreciate so much about this article is um, you taking us into the kind of emotional life of digital technology, not through the perspective, first and foremost, of the consumer, but through the perspective of the exploitation of labor power, uh, as that also impinges upon upon the consumer but also thinking through how how it operates at work. So, let me me read this passage. Um, Analytics are a product of now, now available massive pools of data, which can be evaluated at various scales and granularities. Quantified workplaces collect data concerning employee performance, productivity, number of keystrokes, turnover rates, employee retention, employee engagement, and overall job satisfaction, and more which is monitored and analyzed automatically while workers are requested to log their rates of stress, well-being, subjective sense of productivity, sometimes on a Likert scale of one through five, conveyed through little pictograms of of button faces, which range from the large smile to the downturned mouth. A scale of one to five, there may may only be room, at least in the administered world, for five emotions. Each bit of data is a clue to future moves on the part of the floating specks of human capital. Such analytic might be able to track a general shift in morale or mood as it sweeps across a company. That emotions and mood are key indicators is evident in the rise of another digital analytic field, which is emotion analytics or sentiment analysis. New techniques of emotional tracking through computers have been directed at workers as well as at consumers in various ways. Beyond endless online surveys, monitoring emotional states, microphones collect data on language and tone of voice in the workplace. Audio mining techniques and a correlation engine ascribes the labels of human emotions to those monitored words and tones. There's also the mobilization of video cameras to capture facial expressions and modes of attention. These migrate from workplace to zones of leisure to shopping centers, to school and other institutions. In June 2018, reports circulated of a smart classroom behavior management system used in a school in Hangzhou in China to assess degrees of attention and mind-wandering during class through computerized facial analysis. The company Amazon is a leader in deploying these measures of emotional and affective response in the workplace and in the arena of consumption. In September 2018, there were reports that Amazon has applied for a patent for self-opening smart parcels that can video their recipients' excitement as they open the package. Um, it, 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 uh, in such a way, it's so strangely dystopian. Um, and I wonder... Uh, what I appreciate about this article in some ways is that it tries to, again, link us to a longer history of the way that capitalism has uh, relied upon the orchestration of emotions in certain ways, the production of emotion, the suppression of emotion. And I wonder here a little bit about, um, and I don't want to get too, too deep in the weeds, but the question of, of why, I mean, is this ultimately about reducing uh, the number, like, Reducing capital's reliance on workers, in some sense, it's, if you have got a more efficient worker, you can pay the pay workers less. You can hire less labor power because each unit of labor power, being the human being, is um, is more productive. Is it about accelerating consumption? Is it, in other words, is it is it sort of on a microeconomic scale about the firm trying to? Um, trying to minimize its costs while maximize the value that it extracts? Or is there some kind of broader shift going on for, for in, your, in your thinking in the nature of capitalism itself, in the sense that, it, it, as maybe some have argued, there is a kind of shift more generally to in the nature of value generation in the system, that now the system is more invested in harnessing and exciting emotions. Um, I don't know if that question makes as much sense, but I guess I'm, I'm, I'm curious if there's been a, a, a fundamental shift in the nature of capitalism, or if this is capitalism as usual, but with new technologies.
2: Yeah, I think I find it very hard to answer that I suppose I mean there, there's that thing Mackenzie Walk says isn't there about how um, capitalism always comes with some kind of qualifier so we've had surveillance capitalism you know we could bolt something on the front but you know are we now just simply beyond it or somewhere else so well, I would leave that open but um, I think I'm not sure that the beast is always necessarily um, rational or self-determining but I I, I think a, lo- a lot of these technologies that have developed which are around you know emotion tracking and, and I think also a lot of physiological tracking now um, uh, earbuds that measure oxygenation levels or pulse rate and uh, all of those um, things which I've written about elsewhere also in relation to to cattle um, mm. uh, and, and the milk yield and so on, where they're certainly directed towards new efficiencies within production, streamlined production, and the um, uh, being able to step in and, and um, uh, prevent certain kind of hold-ups hold in, in the flow of things. And never forget, we are now the herd um, who should <laughs> get immunity so you know I I take it really seriously that that sense in which if we want to know what's happening to us we we look at what's happening to cattle but I I think so I think it it, you know is to do with new efficiencies but I also think it's um uh it's part of a self-justification of of this notion of management of human resources that the what comes to tell us and others um where the competitive um difference can be made within the company is via this this whole um set of managers who 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 are a bit like our politicians you know who set themselves at at the head of things and promise to to sort of produce competitive advantage in this Unholy alliance with um, AI with artificial intelligence and high tech solutions, so I think there 's a lot of spin around very powerful and very wealthy interests who who convince capitalism that this is the way to go. this is how to maintain competitiveness uh, in in difficult situations in situations where capital is so often tending towards crisis so i don't know if that constitutes a different stage or a really different way of doing it but it's that it 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 is yet again another wave of of uh, using investment in technology in order to produce um, a a productive um, leap ahead in relation to all the others who are trying to get to the same place yes yeah, so I, think, I think that's probably one way i'd see it I, and also it's almost i mean i talk a lot about atmosphere in that article and i talk about atmospheres and environments in general because i do think and this is where i get strictly sort of very it's not scientific because it's about certain <clears throat> kinds of feelings and You know, it's like viruses and memes, you know, these things are kind of around us, but we don't see them. But, you know, we exist within an atmosphere, which is a heavy uh, technologized one of data flying backwards and forwards of us emanating uh, data from ourselves constantly. Um, This is is the, the atmosphere within which we are, and one can't necessarily find... Um, where these things start from, because it 's also entangled and atmospheric you know we precisely sort of move through it without seeing it, and we 're not necessarily sure where the, the agency is um, in in all of us, so I think that atmospheric sense, for example, of you know we are all gamified now or the quantified self it, it kind of creeps up on us and then we find whoa you know it's it's well well advanced but um where it starts from and where it ends uh is precisely what what we can't see because we're too immersed in it i think
0: Mm -hmm. the the impetus for this podcast and the project of which it's a part um the common anxieties project is um an attempt to perform a a a sort of materialist and, and uh, approach and a theorization of the so called epidemic of student anxiety. And I wonder um, what your thoughts are on this, because I think one of the things that, that motivated us is to try and think through the affects, the dispositions, the uh, powers, if you like, too, of a generation who has really been raised in this atmosphere, this digitalized atmosphere. Uh, so, somehow cognizant, maybe not consciously, but on some level, that their emotions are being put to work, and that they uh, that this this line between the inner world and of of what uh, what it used to be considered kind of inner world and a kind of outer world of capitalist exploitation that that line is no longer mm. secure. And I, I'm curious if. If you have a thought about how how this connects, both as a as a teacher and someone who's who's studied the kind of uh, emotional and psychic life of capital for so long, um, in in our students today and the the sorts of things that they're going through in the increasingly neoliberal university.
2: Yeah, I mean, at some level, it's just it's really material, isn't it? You know, because mm-hmm. there, there's always a, a a tendency to say this is you know just a a uh, An irrational response, but actually it, the sort of things that um, I think people who are students today have been through since they were at school you know endless crisis um, war uh, the, the inability to imagine themselves in in stable jobs and stable homes, and so on i mean it, it's almost a wonder there was robust as um as they might uh, be, so you know. At some level, I think it's um, you know that there, there's no mystery there to that rise of um, uh, of insecurity, anxiety, um, depression, and so on. I suppose at another level, uh, there there's a replicative um, way in which you know, the very public lives that some of them live on social media and so on sort of allows for a, a kind of sharing that maybe can become sometimes contagious, sometimes competitive. Um, I'm not sure if that's a, a cruel thing to say, but I mean, I notice it also amongst um, people who are um, in much less secure Positions than me as academics um, but you know it's that it's a sort of the misery narrative about how how bad things are um, and or how not how bad things are how unfair in a very unspecific way things mm-hmm. are people um, you know, sometimes engage in that again for totally understandable reasons. But where pri- I suppose previously that would have been private gripes and so on, these these take place very publicly and flare up and uh, uh, add to a, a heightened kind of emotional tenor that one feels one exists um, within. So, I mean, I've yeah, and and these things uh, fly around very easily that whole idea is there a saying about bad news has wings or something but that came up in in the article that we're referring to where initially facebook thought that positive uh, reactions and positive kind of stories were the things that got passed around most of all there's been more of an evolution and and now it's negative reactions and negative stories that they reckon get the most traction um within these channels of social media so there's a sort of amplification of negativity effect that, that um seems to to go on and which and so people talk about the kind of these toxic channels and um you know the trolling and spitefulness and and so on which is undoubtedly you know a part of that world um, yeah, but I, I I still think one should never look away from the sense in which the, these are uh, also justified and concrete re- reactions to to what is an actual un- unfairness um, and a differential in the, in the ways in which someone of my age has experienced their life and possibilities within it and and the ways in which a lot of younger people are compelled to.
0: I was I was very struck. In this article the way that you move from talking about the excitement and suppression of individual emotions to the the way that emotions cluster and uh move together in the, in the form of a cloud or in the form of an atmosphere um and and how what I, one of the things I took from your article is that there's a certain sense that, that the corporations, both that are targeting workers and targeting consumers, really want to have a, a very precise control over this atmosphere. And yet something about the atmosphere, the emotional and affective atmospheres uh, between us is in some way beyond their, their control. They're, they're in some ways chasing it uh, as much as they're trying to change it. Um, and I, I wanted to read this, uh, this final passage I have for us today um, that uh, you used to close the, the article, which I think is really illuminating, too. You write, the flurry of emotional expression that is represented by emoji, the constant barrage of likes and loves and signs of affect and revelations of mood, for sure, obscure the more subtle and complex states of being that exist perhaps because those are not currently of use to marketers or manipulators, cannot be mined so efficiently, at least not yet, or cannot always be simply coshed by drugs that appear as a quick fix to emotional and mental distress, or met with some other product that promises to wipe away trauma or enhance mood. This flood of emoji also leaves the smallest or no space for those whose emotional or mental states are regarded as so far outside of the grid, so beyond the limits, that all that can happen is that they get abandoned. What room for psychosis on the palette of emoji? What room for suicidal feeling? And if there were room, how much of these uh, be perceived in the bustle of updates, memes, and one-liners? Of course, suicide emoji exist, and maybe someone could communicate their intention in, that, in this way, and maybe it would be seen in the flood or maybe not. And maybe someone would respond, not just with the reaction emoji, but really responding or not. It would be wrong to dismiss the modes of communication of emotional states that humans or tech companies have invented, but they do draw attention to the current state of our emotional language. They make explicit that it lends itself to certain kinds of data capture and mining And in the process, the complex actuality of emotional states and the extremities of emotions are subsumed and the simplified ones operationalized, not least for our work or as a labor power that gives constantly with all moods made productive for something. Our devices are complicit in the circulation of explicit but circumscribed emotions, which are, as labor has been before it, subjected to parceling up, The division of labor, a strict division, all the better to calibrate all that labor power, that capacity to think and feel and respond and to produce mood. And in an operation of what has been termed psychopolitics, all the better through the devices, devious divisions to direct those capacities where they are most profitable. Um, there's so much going on in these in these final, I think, quite quite haunting and important words. Uh, but maybe just to take the kind of first one that jumps out is the way in which this um, the kind of emoji atmosphere that we are living in now uh, so dramatically delimits uh, the kind of spectrum of uh, affective and emotional expression that we have that we're now asked to. Uh, really articulate all the emotions we could possibly have in only one of five little faces, now six, because care has been added. And maybe this brings us in some way full circle um, because it strikes me that in moments of incredible crisis and an incredible crisis of capitalism, such as we're living in now, Facebook responds by giving us a new emotion, adding another color to the palette. And yet that color in some ways is unlike any other color because it doesn't actually refer to an emotion, as we understand it. Care, like so many things, is a bundle of emotions. Um, and as so many theorists point out, care is complex. Care can include anger and frustration and uh, disagreement. Um, and so I wonder, you know, um, where, where does this leave us, those who would struggle not only for a larger emotional palette, and, and for a kind of world where many different um, psychological worlds can fit? Uh, where does it leave those, should, should we be in some sense quitting these social media and or should we be somehow hacking them or using them differently to give us a greater range of emotional uh, possibilities for, for really responding as you, as you put it here, like really, really actually reaching out and uh, having that kind of response that isn't simply clicking like or clicking angry or what have you.
2: Yeah, I guess, I mean, I suppose we, you know, we we can't and we won't stop using them. I guess we we can be wary of them in some ways and, and understand um, why they exist and what might be happening at, at the other end of our finger touch, you know, that this, you know, tiny fingertip sort of connects us into real massive analytics systems um, and so we uh, rather than sort of performatively showing how you know caring and lovely we are we we I suppose we might think about as you say what it really would mean to care what would one have to do to actually um, care about something what would that um, necessitate so I think it, you know, it's like it's like the, my, my final line about the devices, kind of divisiveness, come, comes from this idea that in the etymology of the notion of the device is the notion of division and in the ways in which emotions are uh, conceptualized through through the Likert scales that you click on at the airport or in the workplace um, and through Facebook palette of emotions. You know, these these Divisions become and produce or are reflective of the divisions between us and, you know, some people were um, doing a thing on Facebook, which, um, and I'll probably forget it now, but rather than this notion of social isolation, what was it they were saying? Physical isolation and social solidarity. Um, So, you know, twisting the, the kind of government mandated phrase into something that then proposes in good Marxist sense um, in, in some ways a kind of contradiction or a contradiction in this moment, because how does one enact the social when in, in some ways it's precisely the social that's um, to, denied to us in these pandemic times, but you know at least it, it, it twists it twists the the frame and thereby produces a slightly new view on things and perhaps you know that should be uh, what should we should be doing uh, much more you know using producing a kind of um, montaged or uh, incongruous kind of combinations of of these limited palettes in order to sort of break them and twist them and, and let something else peek through in the divisions between them I suppose is probably the best I could imagine right now.
0: Mm -hmm. Esther, thank you so much for joining us. It's been uh, such a fascinating article, and uh, it's been a really fascinating conversation.
2: Thank you. Thanks so much. Good to see you.
0: Aris, what did you uh,
1: make of that conversation? With, with, her, her thinking around this subtlety uh, and complexity of emotions and how these are sort of uh, not represented in the available palettes that we have of emojis and that we that we uh, that we use in in those social media I, w- I was kind of thinking. Uh, and kind of in, in connection to your last question of, you know, where does this leave us? So what, what do we do? How do we navigate that space of social media with that, that limited, constraining set of emojis and, uh, that it offers us? So, and, and I was actually thinking that in many ways, some of the new types of social media and digital apps have become even more sophisticated. And the type of aesthetic that they give us Uh, actually speaks to that subtlety and complexity of emotions much more efficiently. And I'm thinking here, as you know, I'm quite interested in astrology apps, for example, and they have a whole fascinating universe, chaotic and complex universe that they seem to be endorsing aesthetically. So they come, for example, with uh, one of those apps, Costa, very popular amongst uh, the sort of Gen Z generation. They come with this very fascinating, neat, kind of apocalyptic emoji aesthetic, a very wide array of, of very dark and kind of sinister type of images, which they actually, once you download the app, they embed in your, in your iPhone and you can use them when you text. So quite interesting how they speak to that uh, sort of uh, emotional state and mood of the moment. Um, and, and so it's just a reflection in terms of how then our way of uh, uh, kind of mobilizing emotions and, and navigating these new technologies and, and media, how is it affected by that type of technological uh, evolution? So, you know, it's kind of an open question, but I think it's, 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 it's an interesting, uh, I, was, I was really interested in, in that kind of link.
0: For me, it brought up... Um again, and maybe I'm, I'm fixated on this because it was the last thing we discussed. And, and what you mentioned is, is the strange way that uh, we're quite limited in the palette of emotions we get to discuss. And perhaps because I'm um, uh, I, I'm limited to the English language. I am often frustrated by the language I live in for its incredibly limited emotional palette. I mean, English is this, you know, historically extremely imperialist language um, shaped by multiple uh layers of empire and it means that for instance you know we have like a million different words for weapons and only one word for love which is supposed to encompass somehow both romantic love and familial love and front and like platonic love and etc etc like capitalism we have to constantly add these qualifiers to the most important uh emotion that there is arguably um and it reminds me that uh you know there's there's of course the academic field of that gets termed affect theory, which has made some really interesting developments in the last few years in helping us think through the importance of emotions to political life and to cultural life. Uh, but then also coming to meet it uh, from a completely different space is some very interesting developments in neuroscience of all things. Uh, I was recently uh, reading the work of uh, Lisa Feldman Barrett, who's a very interesting neuroscientist of, of emotion who makes the, what would have at one point seemed completely radical argument, and it's still radical in neuroscientific circles, but gaining a great deal of acceptance, that ultimately uh, these things that we understand to be emotions that exist in kind of discrete, distinct boxes like anger and uh, you know, um, uh, fear and disappointment, that these boxes are ultimately arbitrary. They're, they're ultimately cultural, they're, fra- they're built, and we teach, ourselves as a species generation upon generation culturally how to name different embodied sensations as emotions and again from a sort of a, a postmodern informed uh, deconstruction informed uh, perspective in the social sciences humanities this is not necessarily surprising what is surprising is to examine the neuro the um, sort of neuroscience evidence for it And what she concludes in her book, one of the most interesting conclusions I find, is she suggests that we really have to take responsibility for broadening our palette uh, of emotion, for developing actual new words and terms and popularizing new words and terms for the complexity of emotion. And she points out that this has happened within the history of English quite a few times, like famously the word like schadenfreude, the, the enjoyment you take from the suffering of someone else. Uh, this is a word that had to be borrowed from outside of the language in order to make sense of a quite common emotion. But there are others as well. Uh, And there are some art projects, which I'll put in the show notes because I can't remember the names right now, that are trying to do this kind of work of, of giving a language for us to describe shared experience. And the final thing I would say about that is simply that I think the importance of this as a political project is more important now than ever. So, you know, we're here in the middle of the lockdown. How do you describe that sensation of being at once busy and bored that many of us feel what how do you describe the sensation of mm. wanting to reach out to your friends and family and not being able to handle one more stupid zoom meeting where it feels like you know you're you're at a distance but also in some weird proximity how do you discuss the um the strange emotion of wanting the separation that you no longer believe in between public and private space but still wanting that in some way. Like there's a whole range of emotions that I think in our quote unquote new normal we're experiencing and that if we can't name them, we risk it being named for us within that kind of limited corporate palette that I think Esther's uh, essay gives us so clearly. And so in some way there's such an importance now, um, a way of, I guess, taking care in a different sense in Mm -hmm. redefining the emotional landscape and recategorizing things and adding more granularity and complexity than the five, now six, emotional responses that Facebook
1: gives us. Absolutely, and I think you know, this just to, uh, brings us also back again to, to the question of the imagination, right? Which we, you know, it's, uh, it's the, the, the sort of the, the viewpoint from which we can begin to uh, expand that palette uh, beyond the kind of discursive linguistic means it's kind of this deploy deploying the full breadth of our imaginative capacities that can include other forms of representation Um, and you know uh, this is where art art projects are uh, you know are able to offer this kind of um, uh, reach a language for that expansion to take place but you know ultimately i think uh, it also takes us back to where we began this this podcast series with that, those questions of, um, you know, this radical uncertainty and radical complexity that we're experiencing and uh, how do we make sense of it and what how do we represent our complex emotional experience of it? And, you know, I think, um, yeah, it, it, it is, there are here opportunities as well that are being opened up in, in our current moment. So, yeah, it was a, Really interesting conversation I thought. Hmm. Well with that I think
0: we should probably bring this episode to a close. So a reminder that uh, you can find more about this uh, this uh, broadcast uh, on our website at anxious.community A-N-X-I-O-U-S dot community uh, and you can also find more information at the uh, Institute for Advanced Studies at University College London uh this has been a production of the reimagining value action lab and also the institute for advanced studies at ucl Uh, and we look forward to seeing you next time
1: see you next time